Well, welcome to Las Vegas. How do you enjoy the conference so far? Oh, this is great. It feels like it's pre-COVID 2019, a lot of attendees and participants actually coinciding with a self-storage conference that's happening at the MGM. And it's the first time the Western States Craft MBA conference has actually moved to ARIA for probably the first time in 10 plus years. And you don't have to be so serious and nervous. <laughs> My podcast is pretty casual. Okay. Um, are you going to the self-storage conference as well? Why don't you talk about what you learned or what you're looking forward to at both of these conferences? Yeah, I not, I'm not attending the self-storage conference, but primarily I'm here for the Mortgage Bankers Association Conference, which is the, the Western States Conference. So just here to network with your brokers, familiar faces, a lot of folks that's in the lending space, as we call it, competitors. But same time, we're all peers, right? We're we're in the industry to do real estate mortgages on the commercial side and trying to figure out what's happening in the current state and the volatility of the markets. And before we get into that, do you want to take a step back and tell us, tell the audience who you are, what you do, your background, and then we can talk about what you're looking forward to at the conference and what have you learned from the peers from these conversations so far? What is the state of the market? Sure. So my name is Eric Tang. I work with a large insurance company on the investment arm. We do mortgage lending. Can't disclose who we are because we, we are very sensitive about PR right now. But essentially, I, I do real estate mortgage lending. I've done that for about 17 years. You know, my background is Southern California, born and raised, son to two Taiwanese immigrants. Very fortunate to be in Southern California, enjoying the sunshine, although it's very expensive to live there, as we all know. Uh, I'm married with two wonderful kids. They're a joy to me. I try to balance my time with work and also the family, but at the same time have work obligations like coming out to the uh, conference this week. So happy to to really be here. And I think what we're trying to figure out in today today's environment is we we've been in a rising real estate valuation market. Everything's been going up. You've seen markets like Vegas expand and really just show urban sprawl. And the next step is what's going to happen next. You, you see that growth. COVID happened with a lot of people moving out of the expensive CBD coastal markets into like Phoenix, Vegas. You've seen in Boise. And now with interest rates rising, the market's kind of fluctuating a little bit. We're trying to figure out what's next. And we don't want to necessarily go too deep like we did in 2008, 2009. When I say we, but most of the lenders did aggressively lending in an environment that would cause a recession. So that's the R word that we're all very conscious about. But at the same time, we should realize that, yeah, it's been 10 plus years. We we should see a recession and a, a healthy correction in this market. And from the conversations you are hearing at the conference, any feedbacks on the deal flows or the valuation of the assets or which products, which food groups are in favor of the lenders and which food groups are the ones that everybody's trying to avoid? Yeah, so multifamily has been always the favorite food group. You talk to agency lenders like Fannie and Freddie, you talk to bank lenders, and you talk to insurance companies as well and debt funds. They think multifamily has a lot of room to grow. People need housing. It's in short supply. And 
it's a very almost like a fixed income bond like you you have a loan on a multifamily asset that's going to be leased if it's in a good market and it's leasing well it's going to do well in the next 10 15 years the asset class that we're really struggling with and this is the key theme that we've heard so office is like retail five six years ago they're at an inflection point where it says there's where the the term was over retailed right five six years ago where we said there's too many retail plazas a lot of big spaces, a lot of the unsustainable Amazon disrupted those industries. And now those big stores are going to sit empty because they've filed bankruptcy or closed stores. The problem with office right now is post COVID, we, we push back the return to work mandate. Every time we have, we've hit a, a variant or some type of company policy uh, and you keep pushing it back. And now everyone says like Apple, let's go back to work full time. You see the employees push back. Or you've seen companies say, well, we'll be hybrid and trying to figure out who, who's in, who's out. And then you have other companies who are just completely remote, like Yelp in San Francisco, they close all their offices. So I think that's what we're struggling with. And I think it's certain markets because I can't generally say that's all office, but then you see Los Angeles and San Francisco, they struggle with companies trying to really determine if they want to lease office space. So that's, that's the class we're worried about. The other, I think, asset classes that we're a little bit sensitive about, we're, we're bullish on industrial, but you've seen what Amazon has said. And they said, we, we've leased and built a lot of logistics and distribution centers, but we may be building too much. So they've scaled back, which caused a little bit of a shock. They've canceled leases. So we're opportunistic with industrial, but we realize there's a lot of speculative development as well. So just want to be a little bit cautious. One area that we're really emerging from is building a speculative life science R&D and office development. So key markets like Boston, Cambridge, Philly, Raleigh-Durham, and the RTP Research Triangle, and South San Francisco. Those are our key markets that we're seeing a lot of development, and lenders are getting a lot of great, at least for now, spread pricing on their mortgage quotes. And what about single-family rental? So that's been an interesting inquiry. I've, I've heard a few people actually reach out coincidentally, and they uh, they basically asked me, well, what do you think about single family rental, which we know Blackstone has been a big proponent about, and they've accumulated a lot of these uh, assets under their umbrella. It's cheaper for them to build. I mean, in, ter- in terms of building, it's cheaper for them to acquire those assets because you, you see what the cost of constructions look like for podium wrap, type one steel or wood frame construction versus just buying single family tract homes that you know they can accumulate and see home prices you appreciate faster right so they have a an asset they're acquiring they can lease it or they can sell it and so they benefit both ways we as a lender it's a new asset class it's hard for us to envision a lot of renters to go to single family rentals you have to have families you either have families or need to split up because they're bigger chunk rents, right? Because you're renting the whole house. And I think it's going to have a purpose because you have markets that are completely filled up where developers can't buy land cheap and they can't build it cheap. So now you have kind of suburban areas that offers lower rents at the same time of provides uh, availability for housing. 
Yeah, and a lot of the single-family rentals currently they're owned by mom and pops owners. But if there's a developer that comes in, kind of building a multi-family amenities, but with single-family home products, and the type of the residents are millennials who are started to have a family, and the turnover rate of these residents are lower than the people who rent out apartments. Yeah, so I, I think the the key point of that is that location, right? We we definitely need to make sure that it's located in areas that serves the immediate market, drive through markets, but also at the same time can't be heavily congested because otherwise these renters are going to say, my commute time just increased by an hour if I'm living outside where I need to commute to. But I also realized that with post-COVID, if you work in a certain industry, if you're remote or hybrid, it provides you the flexibility now that you don't have to worry about commuting. So I really think that there is a benefit on getting that as an asset class for lenders to you know, take on. Give me one second. <laughs> Any other things you heard from the conference, you learned from the conference? Or you, you should be one of the panel speakers, right? Um, You're one of the speakers. I, I try to avoid speaking engagement because <laughs> because people think I'm I'm very risk averse, meaning I'm, I'm a credit officer. I tend to be conservative. When I look at a deal, they'll say, what's wrong with it, right? So um, they want more of the originators. They want to hear about what, are, what companies, especially the lenders, are doing to help bring in capital, flow in development dollars or refinance and help assist in our industry. So I, I think one of the things that I brought up is really just making sure that underwriting is prudent. We're seeing a lot of issues with when we get offering memorandums from debt brokers, they'll say, look, rent's going to grow three, four, 5% per annum in their cash flow models. And I think that's the issue that we always face to say, okay, where do the projections go? Because this is not sustainable. You can't grow rents that much. I mean, I'm not getting paid that much every year to keep up with the rent increases, right? For example, or what we're finding, and I, I'm talking to third-party consultants, we, we use engineering environmental firms. So we typically, when, our, when we bring in a loan, we make sure that the property is clean in terms of the site, no environmental issues, and the property is kept up, or if it's new built, make sure that it's built to spec specifications. So one of the issues that we notice is that is there operating efficiencies? A lot of these debt brokers just look at numbers and say, well, that's what the bar's budgets say, but we have consultants that we hire construction and also engineering side say, well, it's not gonna be as efficient, so your utilities are gonna go up. Or this layout requires more RM or turnovers higher because in this market you potentially have more renters that are short term. So a lot of that is the question mark I I bring at least in, in this current environment, I ask a lot of the consultants and also brokers and say, look, how do we know that expenses are going to be at X amount? Or how are you projecting it in a way that's only growing 3%? Because insurance has gone up. We know that the post-COVID, there's been a lot of casualty claims. You got business interruption you've had, and you have fires. I mean, it, there's a lot of global climate changes that's affecting even our industry with insurance premiums, so how much we pay. I mean, I'm sure you've seen your own personal home and auto insurance has gone up. And, and those are the same companies that insure commercial real estate as well. So they are struggling to really keep those premiums lower. Now, look, insurance is a small part of the property expense, but it's still 
one line item that's increasing even with like wages we're seeing clean staff your engineers that go around to the apartments to in the day-to-day -day of mechanical engineering that those guys are now getting paid more. I mean, there's also talks in California when you have fast food workers making $22 an hour being proposed, that becomes a trickle effect to potentially everyone else in the service and also kind of what I'm seeing is more of the construction labor force as well. I'm not a lender, but I want to hear like how competitive it is right now to be a lender and it's and then I see a, there are a lot of brokers out there. Everybody's chasing deal, but there's so few good deals to invest in. <laughs> well, I, I would say this in our industry. So we're split, right? So I think when we say lenders, there's probably around, I would say, three or four groups. You have your securization CMBS lenders. And those are for fairly nuanced. There's certain assets that we know, and, and I don't want to really claim to say these fit the CMBS box, but there's certain assets that only go in CMBS. So there's enough deals to go through that because they're a type of quality and cash flows and underwriting that fit because borrowers want 10-year full-term interest-only loans. And they tend to be smaller deals because on a CMBS bond, you have your anywhere between 30 to 40 million down to like a $2 million deal on the loan size. And they want to diversify, so they throw in 50 or 60 of those loans together and package it up. There are mortgage brokers and lenders that fit in that space. And then there's the bank lenders. They're recourse lenders. They go with certain developers that only go with the banks because they have lowest cost, right? So they do relationships because what they'll do is, hey, bank with us, Wells Fargo City, JP Morgan, all the other banks. But give us deposits, give us all your treasury services. We make a spread or profit on your essentially your deposits with us. And and in return, we'll give you a very low interest rate on your loans. So that there's that bucket, which there's a space for for those space. And then then where we play in is like what we call non-bank lenders. So insurance companies and debt funds will do. You know, bigger deals, we'll do non-recourse deals, and we'll do deals that those two other lenders I mentioned won't do. So for example, banks struggle to do anything that's 300, 400 million, because what they'll do is they'll do a term called syndication participations. They'll sell out pieces to other banks. Well, borrowers are going to say, I don't want to wait for 10 banks to fill out a $400 million commitment. I'm going to go to one company to take down. So there's enough because the commercial real estate industry is so diverse in terms of deal sizes, deal types, that you can fill in a lot of that. There, there's no shortages of deals. I can tell you this. My originators usually get like 10 packages and we get it from like JLL, Eastdale, Cushman, Newmark, Grand Bridge, Walker, Dunlop. I mean, you get all those names. There's a lot of commercial mortgage brokers out there and they have a pipeline of deals. It's, it just seems like it flows in every day. So I, I wouldn't be too concerned about the competition so much. The, the, I mean, our industry, surprisingly, it is big enough that there is no shortage of deals and it's never ending. The only time that it does, and, and I've seen this in my lifetime, is during the GFC, Great Financial Crisis, was that, you know, capital stopped. So all the lenders basically said, we don't want to do deals. Well, if we don't do deals or we can't lend. Brokers won't don't have any incentive to 
do these long 30 page packages to, to market their deals. So going back to your point, it, there's no shortage. I think there's continuing loans that are refinancing every year we have like what we call wall maturities and we always look at so there's five-year 10-year seven-year mortgages that come up for refinance so we're also kind of recycling deals as well so you get new deals and you get old deals that you get to look through did i answer your question or is there yeah that's interesting and i think we have spoken enough about commercial real estate let's talk about something i think it's very interesting i want to hear about your opinion about Coming back to Las Vegas after the pandemic, what have you seen on the strip that's different? And how does that tell you about whether the recovery or the volatility in our economy? Just by looking at the Las Vegas strip, that's like the benchmark that everybody looks at. So I I look at it from the ground level side, right? So I, I think of when I look at the return of Vegas and everyone has the stereotype to say, well, Vegas has been traditionally and truly concentrated in the gaming industry. So the the first lifeline that you see to the return of kind of Vegas post-pandemic is really about the patrons in the casinos, the foot traffic. And one of the things the asset classes we talk about is hotels. Yes. So, so you look at occupancy and ADR and RevPAR. Those are the three metrics that we on the lending side, as well as the equity investor side, we always focus on because those are the top cash flow metrics. And there's been a report that said RevPAR, you know, essentially has surpassed the 2019 peak. And what that means is basically, okay, well, your top line patrons are paying more, hotels are being occupied more, there's maybe less rooms to occupy because hotel operators are smart about what what to keep available, but cash flow is going to stay the same. So what I've heard is that top line's great, expenses have gone up, though, unfortunately. But if you look at reality on the casino side and you know kind of restaurants patrons are paying more they're still dining so the increase interesting enough the increase in prices both the hotel room rates and also cost of food and amenities and what people are consuming here they're not slowing down so this is also contributing to the inflation side right because consumers consuming they're increasing inflation Come back to vegas the it was just interesting. It's, yesterday was Wednesday. Walking through middle of the week, you go through casinos like Aria and where the, the commission is and MGM. It's shoulder shoulder people walking through the aisles. They're on the machines, so you you feel that pulse, and it's the, it's a deep relief to see that return to see Las, Las Vegas. That you, historically has been dependent upon a lot of gaming and patronage. But at the same time, we've also noticed. I've, also was on a city tour, you notice what diversification Vegas has gone through. So a lot of industrial, a lot of, and when I say urban sprawl, there's a lot of subdivisions, multifamily developments. We have sports teams like the Raiders. You you have the WNBA sports Las franchise. Vegas A's. A's. We made it to the final. Uh, and and you have, and congratulations, and, and you're potentially bringing in another baseball team. That, that's been the rumor as well. So there's a lot of investment coming into Vegas. It's great to see that it's a growth market. And the only, my concern is, as you and I talked about Vegas, it's really just a valley, right? So you get to the point where you develop up against the foothills and that's it. There's only so much land to develop. So you either tear down the old buildings, gentrify certain neighborhoods, or you're going to have to connect Vegas somehow to an expanded city somewhere because the, yeah. the valley is the only way you can go. 
Yeah, one of the things we always talk about in on the development side is we're starting to see Las Vegas converting from a low-rise city to mid and high-rise, starting in downtown, which is a more dense neighborhood. But then we have to change the zoning to yeah. allow mid to high-rise. Yeah, and luckily, at least in I, I hope in Clark County and Las Vegas. That the city council and the public hearing process is a lot smoother than what I'm accustomed to in California, where you have, oh, city council public hearing, you have CEQA, you have California Coastal Commission, you have a wave of a lot of headwinds to redevelop, especially anywhere where it touches along the coast. But uh, I, I think it's encouraging that Las Vegas can go vertical because that is what you do if once you hit kind of dense pockets of your boundaries, you have to go up. Yep. Any last comment, last thought before we finish the podcast? And then we're going to have breakfast at MGM, right? <laughs> yeah. Regina can join us too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this is, it's always refreshing to come back to Las Vegas. I'm very encouraged to see kind of everything returning post pandemic. And it's, it's always a fun place to be. You get to see old friends, colleagues, get to network and also have fun. You, you see a lot of these companies come out and they host events. They utilize, <laughs> some some firms are utilizing nightclubs. Some have excursions out to the, the shooting ranges. They have golf outings. So there's a lot to do. And that's what's great about Las Vegas hosting. One thing, conferences that you have so many activities to do to really entertain convention guests as well as conference patronage. I have been to so many conferences in other cities, and I think Las Vegas is the best city to host a conference because it's always on the Las Vegas Strip, and there's so much more to do besides just the the conference itself. So I do have one question for you, since you're a Las Vegas native. Yes. The question is always, since you're exposed to Las Vegas and the day in, day out of the activities, what you see, do you ever get tired of it? I guess the question is because you're exposed to it every day. For us, we're outside guests and we just come in for a few days, but you live it day in, day out. So does it ever get tiring or boring? And what were your thoughts about that? So a lot of the Las Vegas locals, we don't go to the strip every day. It's kind of imagine if you live in New York City and New Yorkers, they might not want to be at Times Square and be surrounded by millions of tourists pass by so i go to the strip whenever my friends are in town and they're here for conference or vacation and i meet them up or when there's like a show or restaurant like a new one that i want to try and i don't i don't gamble so i don't really go to casino to gamble and besides the strip there's a residential area so the las vegas strip is where all of the tourists go to and that is like the hub of like the commercial side with clubs, shows, and shoppings. And then, but there's also the residential neighborhood and that is where the Las Vegas locals live and work in like Summerlin, Henderson, North Las Vegas and Southwest part of the Valley. That's where you see a lot of the residential growth because a lot of people moving into these residential areas. And Summerlin also have their office complex. Henderson has their own office complex. And we have like shopping centers and neighborhood shopping plazas all over town. So 
as a Las Vegas local, it's a good town to live in. I, I like it because it's an international city that doesn't have a huge population. So it's not as crowded as New York or LA. The traffic is def definitely not as bad as LA. But then we also have, so if I want to have fun, I can go to the strip. But if I want to have like a quiet like a residential lifestyle, then I can just stay away from the strip. That's what I like about Vegas. You're the best of both worlds. Yeah, we really get the best of both worlds. And there's a lot of golf courses and we have an international airport that can fly anywhere. And our city has a long way to go. We have, we have to be better with our education, healthcare, public transportation, water resources, economic development, how can we diversify our economy? So a lot of things that we are still working on. We're a new city and we're innovative people. And I think we can keep improving it, become a more mature city. Well, if Las Vegas gets you as a representative on <laughs> government, representative on the council, you'd be great as a spokesperson to advocate for that. All right. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me.